0: I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane certified label really means. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This week on Meatin' Three, we're spotlighting the people who prepare our meat before it reaches our plates. We hear from whole animal butchers, the brains behind a meat vending machine, California cattle ranchers, and a master of charcuterie who isn't using meat at all. It's like a smoked and grilled uh, center stock of the broccoli, and then it gets uh, finished with some mustard barbecue sauce and sauerkraut.
1: Ranching and farming being as difficult as it is, you know, it's just one thing after another. And at some point, you just give up.
0: I had a wild idea that if I learned butchery, maybe I could start to be kind of a link in the supply chain. Listen to Meetin' 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues coming to you live from the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez in Stamford, Connecticut on the beautiful Long Island Sound. How you doing, Stas?
3: Good. Yeah,
2: we got uh, John, uh, customer service uh, extraordinaire for Booker Index, uh, coming to you from the Murray Hill. There, how you doing?
0: Not too bad, thanks.
2: Got Matt in his Rhode Island booth. All good. There we go. Yeah, yeah. And uh, joined by joined by today's special guest, which uh, with no further ado, we'll t- I'll talk about why we're late in a second. But uh, like, there is no good excuse. But I'll tell you what happened anyway. Uh, we have, uh, from Kitchen Arts and Letters, uh, coming back on the show for his second appearance, Matt Sartwell, how are you doing?
1: I'm well, thank you. Appreciate having me back.
2: Yeah, well, it's great to have you back. You know, like I, we had to have you back, though, for a specific reason. I, I'm going to just tell you folks who, I don't know if this is your first time tuning in or whatever, Kitchen Arts and Letters is the, like, well, I'm going to put it this way. It's the best... Cookbook store I've ever been in. I will say without any hesitation, it is at least the premier cookbook store in the United States, right? Uh, I have been to a decent, a good cookbook store in Edinburgh, really good. I will say Kitchen Arts and Letters is a better cookbook store. Now, I have not been everywhere on earth, so I can't say that it is the greatest cookbook store on earth just because I haven't been everywhere on earth. But you get my point. Kitchen Arts and Letters is the the store for cooks, people who like food, even if you're tangentially interested in food, and the reason to go to Kitchen Arts and Letters and not somewhere else is because not only is it a store full of books, it is a store full of people who know about the books. And I know a lot of people know about books, but the way Kitchen Arts and Letters knows about cookbooks, the way you know about your best friends. The way you know about like the family stories of your best friends, and that is the reason because a cookbook is so much more enjoyable when you can hear the history behind it. When you when you know about it, you're not just getting random opinions from people on the internet. It's uh it's just it's like a, a treasure that needs to be preserved, and it's it's in the. It's it's uh, on Lex in the in the nineties. What is it between ninety? What is between ninety? Between ninety
1: third and ninety fourth.
2: Ninety three and ninety four. Right. So it's like if you're walking in between the two subway stations, you got to choose whether you're going to get out at eighty six or at ninety six, and then you got to figure out whether you're going to walk because it's on that weird hilly area in Manhattan, right? It's on that weird. You're in that weird hilly zone. It's like the only hilly place in Manhattan.
1: If you if you hate hills, get off at eighty sixth Street.
2: All right. Hear that, folks? If you hate hills, I don't hate hills. If you hate hills, get off uh, on 86th Street.
3: Anyway. Whoever's typing, stop typing or go on mute.
2: So, uh... Is that you, Dave? No! <laughs> I don't even have a computer, Stas. The reason I'm late... <laughs> Is because I was plugging in my Yeti Blue microphone, which in order to make it look professional, it's like the size of a, of a small truck. And then I was spinning it around because you can't pl- you have to spin it around to plug in the USB. And I spun it around and it smacked my, my brand new cup of espresso and shot my espresso against my... Like my my wife's white painted wall, remember she's the architect, and then it splashed into my what I thought was a good idea, open frame computer, and zoop, zorched it. Like like my computer smells great, like espresso, but it no longer is a computer. So after the radio show, I have to go like, you know, hopefully it dries out. Stasi was like, Well, you don't use milk or sugar. Yeah, I, so I heard it should milk be fine. is
3: the real the real killer. But you should you can't turn it upside down, right? Whatever you're talking about.
2: No, no, I'm going to let it dry out. I mean, like, I I honestly, it didn't fry the power. So whatever it did shorted something in the actual computer. So I'm going to let it dry for an hour or two, and then I'm going to turn it on and pray. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's basically all I can do. But like, I had all of my questions for today, like all of my notes, everything. And it it was like, literally like, okay, now it's time to plug in the microphone and get on to, to, get on to zoom and boom, gone. Anyway, uh, so (laughs) there's a coffee question
1: that just came in in the chat. I can append. I can
2: sort of amend it. All right.
3: Ask what type of coffee, how he made it and all that crap.
1: No, no, no. It wasn't about that. No. What was it? What was it? Is (laughs) it it short? Yeah. What is your take on RO versus water softeners for coffee? But I'm wondering would either of them help you in your current situation?
2: Look, if you're going to use, look, the point with coffee is is that you don't want your water like hyper, hyper pure for coffee, right? So, uh, I mean, it probably depends on exactly what kind of coffee you're going to make, but just go get the books by Rao. By the way, uh, Matt, nice to have you on. What are your thoughts on the, on the Rao coffee books? Are those still the best?
1: I have to say I have uh, struggled to get them, so I'm not sure what availability is like. Oh, because he, he, why is he private publishing those? Uh, I believe so. I have to go back and look. It's been a while since I made that effort. Um, You know, I, uh, I rely a lot on notes that I, I bury and then have to go dig out for myself on all, on sourcing all these things.
2: Right. But I mean, by by the way, for best, what I mean is like technical stuff for people who are brewing and making espresso. Is he still, but is, is he, is that still considered like the target that everyone shoots for his work or no? Is there a new target? That people are I, I don't at. think there's
1: a newer better target. No, no. I okay. Don't
2: think, yeah. I mean, target. look, like, like, uh, like back in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, I would say David Schomer is the book to go to if you're interested in espresso, or you know, uh, Ely's uh, The Chemistry of Quality, which has a lot on water in in, in it as well. Um, but um, yeah, I think you know what we're talking about is pro- probably better. But you, you want the the right number of. Uh, Dissolve solids in your coffee. In fact, uh, I forget which one of the, which one of the Ely family I was dealing with. The scientist, the younger one, he's rich, so he dresses very fancy. I met him and he had his nice Italian suit on at the Mandarin, uh, Oriental in New York. This was maybe 12, 13, 14 years ago. And I was like, I'm having trouble with my espresso. And, And he's like, the water here is not right for the perfect espresso. And that's because es- espresso because uh, New York water is famously soft. So he was poo-pooing the entire concept of making espresso with the water that I have at my disposal. And here in New York, we have some of the finest water you could get anywhere. Anyway, so like my point is, is that I think RO, if your water is garbage, then go RO and then put stuff back into it. Right? What do you think? Was that, was that a decent answer or no?
1: That sounds good, and you worked in the cookbook, too, so there you go.
2: There you go, there you go. Yeah, but some of those books are hard to get, especially ones that like geeks go for and uh, that are kind of self-published and or not distributed through normal channels can be a pain, right, Matt?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the problems is that when people self-publish, they don't really think about anything other than what they're writing, and then the whole distribution channel thing is an afterthought until suddenly they have a 1,000 books in their garage and they wonder why uh, they haven't sold them all yet. So, uh, yeah, I love to talk to people in advance. If you're thinking of self-publishing something, reach out to me, reach out to any local bookstore and, and have that little talk about the best way to make that work. Because sometimes it's really way too arcane uh, and uh, to obtain self-published books. And I mean, we carry like a thousand of them here. It's not that we have a prejudice against them, but you've got to think about that kind of thing from the, from the early days in order to make it work.
2: All right, so here's here's a question. In specifically, well, before we get into the questions, uh, why don't we talk a little bit? You have a, you have a GoFundMe going now. Let's talk about the state of uh, selling cookbooks in the COVID 2020 internet times.
1: Well, I mean, the uh, I, I think the precise technical definition is that it, that it sucked for <laughs> uh, for most <laughs> of this year. Um, you know, the, the lockdown came in March, but people had been pulling their uh, their horns in uh, earlier than that in terms of visiting the store and so forth. So the year was off to a bad start and then suddenly we couldn't be open anymore. And you know, for three months we had no no foot traffic. And we did, I mean, I, I have to give this credit to the people who had been our longtime customers. We had a lot of great support through our website, but our website right now represents Maybe 15% of what's in the bookstore. Uh, So there was no way that its sales could keep up with uh, with what we needed to do to cover rent and so forth. I mean, it's a story that's familiar to to anybody whose business was affected by the lockdown. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you about that. Yeah. But but, um, for us, it just meant we were burning through um, through uh, the cash we had on hand, and you know, dancing around and negotiating with vendors and with landlords. Um, I I managed to keep paying my people um, because it was important to me to have them to rely on. And, you know, once we were running, they were a terrific resource to have here in the store, but there was no cash. And um, usually the fall is a huge season for us. We have all these big offsite events. We do the uh, New York City Wine and Food Festival. We do the Star Chefs Chefs Congress. We did the New York Times Food Festival, and none of those things are happening this year. So there was no chance to to get ourselves out of a hole, and our lease is due
3: for renewal. What are you so, at now, and how much money are you going? to go?
1: Sort of, you know, hammered us at the same time. I mean, clearly we're not the only ones in the country facing that. But, you know, I I was standing here looking around, thinking, you know, could we, you know, shut this down and try to start over in a year and there was no way that we could reassemble what we had here. There was no way that we could sort of um, replace the, the kind of nexus we'd become if we, if we stopped. Um, and so I said, help. You know, I, I put the word out and um, I'm blown away. I'm humbled by the way uh, that, uh, that people have stepped, stepped up to backed us. It's been um, incredibly gratifying and heartwarming. Um, and now I feel like uh, I I can't die because I have to do this forever for the people who are are us. You do. In
2: fact, you do. Now, why don't you tell people how to get to your GoFundMe, uh, and we'll do it again at the end.
1: Uh, It's uh, GoFundMe.com. You can just type in Kitchen Arts & Letters on the search bar, or it's GoFundMe.com slash save Kitchen Arts & Letters. Now, um, I... Uh, we are, as of about an hour ago, we were at uh, about $89,000. Uh, we uh, initially set a goal of 75 dollars and we hit it in two and a half days, um, which meant I was crying. Um, I raised it because um, if we can put some extra stability under the store, uh, if we can uh, have a little more room to maneuver, because God knows what you know, next year and the year after that are going to look like, then it's all to the better. I mean, one thing I know I'm going to do is pour money into uh, improving and vastly upgrading the website, which was already the plan for this year. And then, you know, boom, that became impossible. So um, we are out of the deepest pit and we're now sort of scrambling at the sides of it.
2: Yeah. Now, how, like, w- I'm sure you think about this a lot. I mean, but obviously you don't actually know what it's like to go to your store as a customer. I mean, some of the people who work for you do. I'm, you know, that I know. But I mean, like to go as a customer, right? I mean, how how can how can you somehow give some of that experience of what it's like to be able to go ask questions in the store to people who can't visit the store. Like that's kind of this post-covid or you know, do you see this as, is it possible this becomes an opportunity? Because what you guys have is so much more than a place where someone hands you money and you hand them a book, you know?
1: Well, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a really fair question. I mean, it's one of the things that I'm trying to figure out for, for the website, because, you know, you come in here and ask us a question. Uh, and sometimes, you know, it'll be a really easy question. There's one obvious answer for it, but at other times there isn't like a, a dead on approach to the, to the subject but there are all these tangential books that that together can help you get there and so you know you can come in and and suddenly one of us is running all over the store pulling books with five or different five or six different sections and saying oh but look at this chapter and check out this um you know and maybe we don't always even know exactly where to look for it first but we know where to start the searching um and finding a way to do that on the web is 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 the great challenge. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. i got one at one thirty. Yeah. That'll be fun.
2: Well, let I me, mean, let me give you, let me give you guys a, let me give the listeners who had never maybe been to the store an example. Like, uh, this is the, so kitchen arts and letters, maybe this is a more succinct way of putting it. They are like research librarians of cooking, right? So, you know, In the way that you could go to, in the way that you could go to the Schlesinger Library at Radcliffe and, you know, kind of go to their librarian who knows a lot, like Kitchen Arts and Letters is like a reference, like reference librarians for cookbooks that where you can actually then buy the book and take it out and own it, right? And I remember uh, when I was writing for Food Arts, this is probably like 05 or something, 06, uh, Jose Andres... 06 somewhere around there, 07. Jose Andres had recently opened Cafe Atlantico at, at, in uh, in DC, and and uh, Daniel Balud was opening a restaurant in Vegas, and planches were the hot new thing. And Michael Batterberry, you know, my mentor, who uh, was the founder, one of the founders of Food Arts, uh, was like, "You're going to write about planches." There was no information on planches, right? There was not a lot on websites about planches, so you go up to Kitchen Arts and Letters, and you're like. Who's done Spain right? Who talks about planches? And then they run around the store, as Matt said, looking for like all possible references to that. Or when I was tasked to write about charcuterie and there wasn't a lot. It's like picking and play and in fact Matt was gonna do as a classics in the field today, because we'll get to that in a minute, cooking by hand, which until like the technical stuff came out, along with Jane Grixon's book, was like the place where you could like read at least a chapter by a great author on charcuterie. So whenever I had something to research, when I was writing an article, I would go to them first. And it's a lot better than, you know, Wikipedia, you know, in terms of like get, getting information. Because as I say, you know, at Kitchen Arts & Letters, they often, they can't on everything, but they often have the backstory on how a particular book got written or why a particular book got written or, you know, where the where the author was at that time, which is helpful for a researcher or an author or even just someone who's interested, you know? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big part of the, the pleasure for us is, is, is sharing that background. Um, you know, we, we don't know everything about every book, obviously. But uh, there are books here that we've, you know, we've known since they were uh, an idea in somebody's head. And we've seen them get written and published and, you know, and win awards and prizes. Uh, and we love talking to people about that. Yeah.
2: So, anyway, why don't we, like, uh, John? Should we do a, uh, should we do a question, or should we get? St- oh, I have a question for you, actually, that came in on Twitter, Matt. Uh, let me see. Uh, you probably you can tell me whether you hate this kind of question or don't. Uh, this is from uh, Pavlo Pavlovsky, Wrote in: What is the best cooking book of 2020 so far? Uh, I hate
1: questions like that. All right. um, I hate almost any question that involves the word best um, because.
0: You what's do what we best do for me may not Zoom be best for
1: for you, Dave, or for somebody else. So our conversations <laughs> right on, are almost always figuring out who we're answering the question for. Um, so it's just. It's, well, let me ask you, you this: What it. is an
2: overlooked What is an overlooked cookbook in twenty twenty that people need to go go search
1: out? <laughs> Uh, oh, now I'm on the spot. Uh, some really fun and offbeat books that uh, I was excited to see. Uh, there's a little book, um, and I'm going to get the title wrong because I don't have it right in front of me, and it's uh, uh, it's long, but it's the proceedings uh, of the first annual gathering of pomological explorers, people who find wild uh, apple varieties uh, along roadsides and in the the back of parking lots. Uh, Because when apples uh, germinate from seed, each apple is genetically distinct. And so the trees that come up are nothing like their parents. Uh, And so these varieties that are found in the wild can be something amazingly new and different from anything that they might be related to. And there are people who find them and and share them and start cultivating them and and bringing them to market. And they gathered together up in Massachusetts last year, and and this little collection showcases um, It's about 66, I think, out of the 120 or so that were on display. Um, So that would be high up on my list of of interesting things. Um, God, I can't even remember what year is what year. For rolling up your sleeves and and working, there was a book that came out early in the year called Carpathia on the food of Romania. This is a part of the world that gets like no respect from big mainstream publishing houses. Um, This one came along and um, I think gives an interesting tour. And then finally, um, a newly published book called Parwana on Afghan food um and again i don't have the book in front of me so i don't have the author's name to hand um her last name is ayubi a-y-u-b-i uh she's an australian whose family fled uh, afghanistan in the early 80s and it is a gorgeously historical book i mean it's also beautifully photographed but the afghan culture in that book is is a revelation uh, for i think for anybody who didn't grow up in afghanistan all right, well, what's the name of that Parwana, one again? Parwana,
2: And I'm also going to check out that Romanian book because my wife's business partner is like Romanian-Romanian, like from Romania, Ceausescu era, like
1: hardcore. Yeah, tough, tough times there for a long time. But but uh, the food is really interesting, and it's this crossroads location with lots of different influences I Cool. All
2: right, awesome. Uh, now, you... Do, do we want to do a normal question, or do we want to go straight to classics in the field, guys? What do you classics want
3: to do? Classics in the field, because you haven't done it in a long time. All
2: right, all right. All right, all right. Now, uh, before we get into it, I have a question about a cookbook. See, this, Now, this is, what, this is what I'm saying. Now, people, I have not predetermined this at all. While I was doing research, before I fried my computer this morning, uh, a cookbook came through my, my internet browser, and I have a question about it, and we have not fi- I have not asked... Matt, whether he knows anything about it. So this is a this, not a test because but I'm just going to see. Are you familiar with the Hakka cookbook that came out like seven, eight years ago? Uh, yeah.
1: University of California press, I think.
2: Dang. See, see what I'm talking about people. Now here's why I'm interested. So the people that make the Sears which is our little, uh, handheld, you know, uh, the, the thing that turns a torch. Oh my into God, the handheld Dave, can we talk
3: about Amazon at some point?
2: In a minute, in a minute, in a minute, like, the sirsal is manufactured by a hakka family that the people who run the factory are hakka which is uh like a very specific kind of group inside a, a, of china right it's its own thing and they have their own cuisine and whenever we go to uh china or often want to go to china we'll go to a hakka we'll go to a hakka restaurant we'll have hakka food so um so I was interested, is the cookbook any good? Like, is that, is that a, a, a should-read, you know, what do you, what do you think there? I heard it doesn't have a lot of illustrations, but I don't need it. Yeah, no, I don't think it has any
1: illustrations. If there are, there's some line drawings. I, I mean, I haven't opened one in maybe a year or so. I, I think it's really strong. I mean, it's a really culturally interesting story uh, about how this group of people has basically sort of been uh, forced to migrate repeatedly within China. Uh, they've managed to maintain a distinct uh, culinary and cultural identity, the food is a is a tremendous linking force, and it's related, but it doesn't seem like exactly like any other kind of Chinese cuisine. Uh, I haven't cooked from it. That's true of most of the books in the store, but we have really good, uh, strong feedback from our customers, and so I have a lot of faith in it. Yeah, All
2: right. yeah. All right. See, see what I mean, people? Like that is the kind of information. How are you going to get that on the internet? You're going to listen to like. Uh, you're going to listen to like. Uh, like uh, Joey Know Nothing on their on their Amazon review. We we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. Uh, by oh, the way, no, no,
3: talk about it first because that's our business. Just no just no no no.
2: I was gonna talk about Amazon reviews for books. What do you what do
3: you want me to say about Amazon the corporation? Uh, what happened on Friday? Because every I've gotten emails from people asking how that's going, how our relationship with Amazon is going. Because a lot of people follow us talking about it on the show. Our relationship with Amazon <laughs> is that look. I've said this before. I'll say it
2: again. Amazon, <laughs> Amazon is good at, if you need to return something to Amazon, like they're, they're great for that, right? Like as a customer, like they're good as a vendor, it is a freaking nightmare. It is a freaking nightmare. So here's what happens. Amazon, right? Amazon, is one of the larger importers of things because they do a lot of like direct importing they import it so this that's how the sears all works people so we have it manufactured in china right and then it gets picked up in china by amazon and then shipped on an amazon contracted boat to the united states and then distributed to an amazon warehouse amazon owns it as soon as it leaves as in china the possession goes from Booker and Dax to Amazon, right? Okay. Seems pretty clear, right? Now, listen question. When does Amazon check to make sure that we've given them the Searsals? Any guesses? Any guesses?
3: Matt or Matt guess? Uh, how different.
2: about in America? Ooh. Ooh. That's interesting. Where in America? <laughs> like. I I yeah, mean order I comes at in. the
1: port, but are you telling me it's like at some sort of like receiving place past the port? Ding, ding ding ding, ding, ding ding, 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 ding. Now,
2: we hand Amazon pallets. I hate to get thousands, too into the we- thousands
3: here, here,
2: Here's how this works, pallet. right? It's every Sears all in a box, every Sears all box with a label this is even funnier, over top of that label is another label with a different barcode because Amazon will have it no other way. You need to have two barcodes, one with the item number that's the manufacturer barcode, and then you must have that, and then you must put another label over it with a second barcode that completely obscures the first. And if you can't do that, then they won't do business. And it takes too long to explain to you why, but that's just the truth. So every one of those individual steers-all boxes is in a box that contains nine by nine by uh contains 27 sorry contains three by three by three seerzals it's 27 to a box right right okay Mm -hmm. so you got 27 seerzals in a box that box has on it several barcodes and labels there are how many, uh, how many of those in a, on a pallet, stars? it's? Uh, it's is,
3: I actually got the real number. Three by three by five. Not what, it's, it's, not it's 18, said, right? Isn't it no, 18? No, it's not, but we can talk about
2: that later. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> so it's, we'll say it's 18 of those on a pallet, and it's wrapped. And then that's what gets handed off. Now, there is no possible way, because of the cube shapes that everything is in, for us to like send three less than we said. It just can't work. You know what I mean? It just there's no way the factory wouldn't know how to send three or four less, right? Anyway, so we say to Amazon, hey, okay, listen, why don't you check when we hand you the stuff to make sure we've handed you all the stuff so you can agree. In because, China. In China. Before it gets
3: on your boat. Before it gets on your
2: boat. Because what's happening is is that someone, not even at the port, but like at their warehouse, mm-hmm. is scanning the stuff in unit by unit. And saying that we're shorting them random numbers of units. It's usually a whole box of 27, but like random, right? And so we're like, we hand them the bill of lading and they're like, which is what doesn't work for us. And they're like, well, we we don't look at the bill of lading. That's not, we look at how many we have in the warehouse. I'm like, but, 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 but you own them from the minute
3: you took them in China, you put them on a boat for a month. And they're saying something's happening in the warehouse and we're like, Okay, but that's your not warehouse. <laughs> your warehouse. <laughs> I'm like, and Nastasi and I were like basic. We got on that call with their, our representative from them, and then Dave before the call says, D- "Are we both going Pesci, or is one of us?" Going <laughs> oh my my go? god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we both went Pesci on him. I like, I was like, "Listen." Oh my god! And then Dave say what Dave said he was gonna put cigarettes out in his kid's eye. I was like, "No, listen, listen. Here's what happened. Like." The guy that we're dealing with is like,
2: listen, this isn't my rules. I'm like, I'm like Amazon. I was like, first of all, I was like in any basic drug deal, right? You test the drugs. And if, if the person you says, open
3: the suitcase. you open
2: the suitcase and the person says, count it. <laughs> and then if you don't count it, it's on you. It's on you. You, you count it when the deal happens, right? It's like, it's he, Amazon is doing this. They're going to a grocery store. They're buying a whole bunch of groceries. They're putting it into their into their outback and they're leaving the hatch open and then they're driving over a dirt road for 55 miles and then when they get there they're like half my groceries fell out I'm not paying you who the hell does this you check when you do the deal
3: yeah
2: unbelievable (laughs) so then so Amazon I'm I guarantee you that Amazon is making money hand over fist. By doing this to people, and they're just like, well, it's the price of doing business. Like they're gonna lose 26 boxes, and we can't force Amazon because they're the richest company in the world. We can't force them to count the stuff when they take it from us. So we'll just have to pretend that we lost it. We'll have to pretend it's us. We'll have to get gaslit by Amazon because what else are we gonna do about it, right? And so uh I was I said to our guy, I shouldn't have said this, I was like, listen. I was like, the con- What you're doing is literally making a difference of whether or not I get to send my kid to a school or not. Like this is like, I was like, this is Nastasi and I. This is our whole business. I was like, this isn't like. He's like, but we only shorted you 13 grand on this one order. I'm like, you only shorted me 13 grand.
3: See, By the way, people. He said that. He said that. Like, there's an
2: order. Okay, not to get too into nuts and bolts. We have an order, 140 thousand dollars. They owe us, and they come back and they're like, how about we give you 40? We're like. <laughs> what? It's
3: like let's make a deal. It's crazy. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy.
2: This reminds me of the time I was having a horrible surgery and I won't even I won't get into it. But I was in let's just say a compromised position and unfortunately not knocked out. So it's the most invasive personal space invasion like horror show Pier Paolo movie kind of thing you could possibly imagine. And while they were doing this procedure to me, this is years ago. The doctor talked about nothing else but how the insurance company was basically doing the same thing to him, basically saying they were going to pay him like 30 cents on the dollar for what he was owed. And I had all you kind of cameras and needles in all kinds of bad places. Orifice. Every orifice. <laughs> it, was like, it was like horror porn for, for... It was the worst. Anyway, that's what it's like because they're like, how about we give you 40? And then like the only 13 grand were shafting you. I was like, oh, dude. So I said to him, I was like, buddy, I was like, may you someday be rich enough, may we all be rich enough that we can, you know, basically put out cigarettes in the eyes of our enemies, uh, children and not worry about it, not have any repercussions. And he was and like, he Oh, jeez. Yeah, silence. Was- <laughs> I was like, I was because like, that's what Amazon is doing. Yeah. Amazon's putting out your cigarette like, in yeah, my kid's yeah, eye.
3: Babe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs>
2: But Stas, is that not what Amazon is doing to us? Yes,
3: yes.
2: They're walking up, hey, Booker, you you need special uh, education? Here, cigarette, boom, in the (laughs) eye. That's what they're doing. Now you also need eye surgery. (laughs) Hope you have money. I only shorted you 13 grand. Yeah, Yeah, anyway, uh, so that's what we're doing with the Amazon right now. Enjoy. So uh, (laughs) back to uh, classics in the field, Matt. Sorry about that uh, slight digression. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah. Um, Amazon Horror Stories. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm Lisa Held, a food journalist and podcast host, presenting Behind the Label with American Humane. Produced by Heritage Radio Network for Springer Mountain Farms, this podcast series dives into what the American Humane Certified label really means. We're looking inside the farm certification process, beginning with the moment a farmer expresses interest in becoming American Humane Certified, all the way to a consumer seeing the seal on store shelves. And American Humane is our country's first national humane organization, founded way back in 1877. Now, we certify nearly 1 billion farm animals each and every year. Despite that growth, uh, roughly 90% of U.S. farm animals are still raised without the benefit of independently verified science-based standards. Subscribe to Behind the Label with American Humane wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: So what do you get? What do you got for classics? Let's go to something a little more fun, a little
1: less On a happier note. Um, yeah. I would like to talk about a book called vegetables from amaranth to zucchini by Elizabeth Schneider. Um, this is a giant, uh, almost 800 page reference book that came out in 2001 and it covers very broadly speaking about 130 different vegetables. Um, which is even more impressive when you consider that she doesn't really talk about things like potatoes and tomatoes, which are, uh, there are so many varieties of those that if you, once you start talking about them, they become entire books on their own. Um, And this is a big sprawling reference book. It is um, written from the point of view of somebody who's, or for the point of view of somebody who's making a living in some way off off these items. Uh, it talks about how to find them, what kind of growers to look for, what a good one is like, um, how it became cultivated and grown in the United States. Uh, it talks about uh, everything from the qualities of the flesh and how it's typically cooked to how well it keeps. Um, and it covers you know, familiar things like broccoli and turnips, but also Banana buds and something called horseradish tree, and uh, something else that's known as New Zealand spinach or tetragonia. And the woman who wrote it, Elizabeth Schneider, had years before uh, co authored a book called Uncommon Fruits and Vegetables. Uh, and this was an outgrowth of that, an even more in depth approach. Um, it is full of uh, information that are recipes that she developed there are notes on how chefs all over the country prepare these things and i think for anybody who's uh who's making a living in food it's pretty goddamn
2: useful tell me ask you a question sure what's it compare this with the uncommon vegetables for those of you that have for those those that have one or like maybe is the other one still, are they, is it worth getting both or are like, are they different enough or
1: they, they are pretty different? I mean, uncommon fruits and vegetables came out, um, middle eighties. Uh, so a lot of the things that are in that book, uh, had become a lot more common, uh, and they aren't so surprising. Um, and of course it's also got fruits, which are not a really a component of vegetables from amaranth to zucchini. Um, Vegetables from amaranth and zucchini is also attempting to be more comprehensive. You can find familiar things in there, um, but it's also got those oddball things. Um, Elizabeth Schneider uh, made her living for a long time consulting with growers about what it was that chefs and restaurants were going to be interested in using in the coming years. Farmers would come to her and say, Hey, what should we be planning? What are people are talking about that uh, they might want to be using more of? So uh, she she was a, u- uniquely plugged into um, uh, a mix uh, of users and and providers that almost nobody else at the time could replicate. She's pretty much retired now and not not writing, but um, at the time that this came out, it was uh, it was really. Um, essentially, and I don't think anything has come close to replicating its importance.
2: Well, now in speaking of like at the time, so this book came out in 2001, right?
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: So I mean, I think a lot of, uh, like one thing that I hate to, to see, especially with, uh, younger readers, right. Is this, uh, they can't, they can't properly judge a book for when it was written, and get the timeless nature of what was written, and also an understanding of what was commonly known when something was written, and therefore they can't get the full enjoyment out of a book that was written 19 years ago, just because they can't get the right mindset. Do you see that happening a lot, or you know, do you have anything to kind of say about that?
1: I, I think we do sometimes encounter that. I, I also think that, at least here in a in our conversation with people we can usually make the case very strongly about why we might think an older book is still the more recent thing. I mean this book established itself as a uh, as a pretty irreplaceable reference and I you know the fundamental nature of of, uh, bitter melon or or ramps uh, hasn't changed in 20 years. Um, There are you know for some cultivated uh widely cultivated vegetables there are new varieties on the market but the basics aren't going to change and and a book like this which represents the work of essentially a lifetime i mean there aren't that many people who are going to blow their lifetime on looking up and up studying vegetables for you wow, so you, you, just, you
2: just said she ruined her life you just said she blew her life
1: she, <laughs> you know i i uh, <laughs> uh, fair I, I think that authors sometimes do that for themselves. they They pour themselves into a project. Um, I mean, she's brilliant, smart, beautiful woman. but uh, yeah, this was this sort of um, she finished this and she sort of gasped and sat down and uh, and has rested since.
2: Yeah, so let me uh, this is why I hate Amazon reviews. So here's a one star review uh, on that book saying, uh, my expectation for this book was to provide the basics on each vegetable, especially in relation to cooking with some more expanded or extensive info added. But for many vegetables, this was not included. All right, one star. That's one star. I thought it was going to be the basics of vegetables, but it wasn't. One star. Jerks, why can't these people just... Why can't the kind of person who writes that review just instead <laughs> stop sucking wind, stopping a waste of space? You know what I mean? I... Uh
1: I, I don't think Amazon's the only place where that happens. But, yeah, yeah. yeah I have I have seen some pretty astonishing reviews on Amazon for books that I think are, are extraordinarily fine.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, it tells you a lot about, you know, as much about the reviewer as it does about the book. Yeah.
2: The other issue, like I say, about kind of what I was getting at with the kind of newness, wanting new stuff, is like uh, let's say someone had written a book on rum Ten years ago, right? They could have spent their entire life on on rum, and it still wouldn't really have a section on clairet, right? You know, from Haiti, like uh, the cane stuff from Haiti. So then, like someone who's just getting into it and uh, getting all the information, like, well, it can't be good because it doesn't even include clairet. You know what I mean? Like that kind of an attitude. I think people need to mentally, mentally kind of erase. Do you know what I mean? Because it's just, I think it's unhelpful and I worry about this when I'm writing too, like how can I write, I know that some of the information that I'm giving now is going to be dated, I know that people are going to do a lot of work, and that things will be superseded, and, and other things, but like a great writer, and I haven't read this uh, yet, I remember I, I was going to get a copy of this book, and I, I never did, um, but a, like a great writer, you, you read them even though you might have some new information. There might be more things available now than were available in 2000 because there clearly is, Do you know what I mean? But I think your life's going to be much richer if you can, if you can kind of, because that, the spirit of the writer doesn't really age. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense?
1: It does. And I think the other thing that people sometimes have gotten out of the habit of doing is, is, you know, because we're so used to going online and like, Entering a phrase and getting a quick answer to a question, is is doing the critical reading that sort of says, you know, what is this source? Where is it coming from? When did it occur? What are its limits going to be? What is it going to tell me that people have stopped paying attention to? Because often that is just as interesting as what is is really sort of suddenly coming into the spotlight. Um, and so you, the certain. Well, I I could go on about this for a long time. Perfection is an illusion. It's a lie. And if you search for it and expect it, you will always be disappointed. So what you do is you find something that's great, even if it's not perfect, and you celebrate what's great about it, and you don't get stuck on thinking that one place is all the answers. And you're happy with that ambiguity. Right. All right.
2: So that book was Vegetables from Amaranth to Zucchini the essential reference anyway, 500 recipes and you can, and you have copies of that available at kitchen arts and letters.
1: We do. Absolutely. It is a big sprawling book and we love to talk about it. What does
2: that, what does that, uh, what does that guy go
1: for? It is $70. It is, like I said, the work of a lifetime and, uh, and the price shows.
2: Also, I'll have, you know, I just looked it up. Same price on Amazon. So why would you ever buy it there? Why would you do that?
1: Anyway, that's a fair question. Yeah.
2: Um, All right, now you wanted to, you were gonna do some Patience Gray as well, right?
1: Yeah, Um, so on a completely different direction, uh, Honey from a Weed by Patience Gray is a book that came out in in 1986. Um, It's a really interesting story. Patience Gray had been a a successful author of sort of a big mainstream uh, cookbook in, in Britain. And this is sort of like, you know, the pioneer woman throws up her former life and goes off to live on a mountainside. Um, She fell in love with a sculptor and she spent many years traveling around the Mediterranean with him to places where uh, he could find the stone that he wanted to work with. Um, So they were in Tuscany, they were in Catalonia, they were on Naxos, which is one of the Greek islands, and they ended up settling in Apulia. Um, and she writes about the food that she learned to cook in all these places, uh, and not, you know, from famous restaurants and notable chefs, but but from the neighbors, because most of the time they were um, living in unheated huts um, in you no know, no sort of on the edge of a quarry, and the closest people were subsistence farmers, and they learned to cook very seasonally. They learned to cook with. Sort of a minimum of ingredients that didn't come from within 10 miles. Uh, And she says very early on that good cooking is the result of a balance struck between frugality and liberality. So, you know, using your ingredients uh, as carefully as you can, but when they're, you know, when something comes on and it's in season, you go wild with it and you do all that you can. It's a book with an astonishing personality. Um, She had a Sort of sense of mysticism um, that wouldn't really fit necessarily with, uh, say, the people at modernist cuisine. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it would, be, <laughs> it would be fascinating to see Nathan Mirvold and Patience Gray talking to each other. But um, it's it's a book with really powerful senses of places and a um, and an amazing versatility with almost nothing to hand.
2: And this is also the '80s. She's writing this in the '80s.
1: This came out in '86. Yeah, it's still in print after after all these years. Um, It's uh, it became sort of a legend. People would make pilgrimages to see her. Uh, She spent like the last twenty five years of her life in uh, uh, in Apulia, literally in a in a in a home without heat. You ever meet her? I did not. She did not leave Apulia. I think. in the last twenty-five years of her life, and I, I never made it there. Yeah. I knew people who'd met her, people like um, Alan Davidson uh, and Ed Bear, who had who had traveled there and met her, but I never
2: did. Well, Al da- Al- Alan Davidson was the one of the reasons she started doing cookbooks, right, or publishing them anyway. She was writing, but wasn't he? By the way, and speaking of classics in the field, I don't know if we ever did his stuff, but his seafood series. He's an ex, was an ex diplomat, and then also like an amateur. Uh, whatever you call a fish person, ichthyologist or whatever it was, and then started writing all of these books on seafood, which are also classics in the field, correct?
1: Exactly. Yeah, his first one was a book on the uh, fish and fish dishes of Laos, which he started writing when he was the British ambassador to Laos. And it's an uh, all-time classic, right? It is. And, I mean, there's, I mean, there's nothing else in English that even comes close to touching that. But he expanded that into a book on the seafood of Southeast Asia. There was one on uh, Mediterranean seafood and one on seafood of the North Atlantic. And they have all flickered in and out of print, but any of them is is worth picking up if you have any interest at all in 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 a really careful, precise seafood book. No photographs. If you have to have pictures, you are SOL. But the written content is astonishing, and the drawings are really helpful.
2: So, what was the connection there between Patience Gray and, and Davidson? He was just to publish. He was he. Uh, he had work? started a, He
1: had started a publishing company called Prospect Books, which was an offshoot of a magazine that he had founded with Elizabeth David called uh, Petit Propoculinaire, PPC, uh, and Prospect Books uh, was published or was founded to publish the, the completed scholarship that PPC was publishing excerpts of, um, and they were gathering together, interesting people. Um, They had a friend in common, uh, a man named Irving Davis, who uh, was living in Catalonia at that point. Uh, Patience Gray writes a lot about him in Honey from a Weed. He was sort of a black sheep, libertine, uh, iconoclastic uh, British expat who had, I think, had to flee Britain and couldn't go back for reasons I was never quite clear on. and uh, But he made a lot of friends in in Catalonia, uh, entertaining people who came through and being passionate about the local Catalonian food. So he met Gray while she was living there and he connected her to Davidson.
2: Yeah, cool. You know, I have a galley of honey from the weed that I got at the Strand in the
1: 90s. Whoa. Yeah. I've I, never I, but, seen one of those.
2: Well, so here's the thing. I went to go look for it uh, and I, I must have it in storage. I gotta go. I gotta go find it. It's uh, it's like a light green. You know how galleys are in that that horrible like oak tag like uh, cardstock. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, with like a line drawing on it. If I find it, I'll I'll give it to you so you can see the difference. If when I find it, I'll. I'll I, in fact, that was one of the ones I know it didn't get pitched in one of my many recent movings because the way this whole classics in the field started to remind those who have no idea is I have a lot of books that one might consider to be unusual or random. And when we're going through which ones we're going to deaccession because we don't have any space because we live in New York, uh, my wife would be like, what about this one? This looks useless. I'm like, that is a classic in the field. And that's how it started.
1: We have a lot of conversations like that
2: here. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, Classics in the field. See, if I find it, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just send it to you so you can see what the. Yeah, I'd be, or just, heard. even
1: even just a photograph, I'd be fascinated to see how they did that. I didn't even realize Prospect was doing galleys back in the day.
2: Yeah, you know? And furthermore, I bought it just based on the title. I had no idea who she was. And I don't know, if, for those of you that have never been to the Strand, this was before the Strand had air conditioning, and you would go in the basement, which is a hellhole, and they'd have this section that was called. Those galleys and some would be galleys and some would, so there's different kinds of like, there's, there's proofs and galleys, like some are paper bound, some look like the finished book, but aren't. And so like, and they were all a dollar, no matter what it was. And 99% of what they had down there was stuff that had just, just, come out so what happens is is that the, the publishing house sends out a bunch of these things to people so that we can review them and then they offload them on the strand strand sells them for a dollar anyway uh so to find one that was at the time probably 12 years old was quite rare so I, that's one reason i picked it up and but her writing is just great you know what i mean
1: it's it's vivid and 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 crisp and um she i mean she doesn't give you recipes like you know like you would find in uh in a standard modern cookbook, they're, they're like one of her neighbors probably explained the whole thing to her. Um,
2: yeah. yeah, but she's a good it's like she's a, a very evocative writer like m- makes you like makes you want to go on a journey with her in the way that like I think MFK Fisher does. although do people still like MFK Fisher or no people still love her or no.
1: I think they do. I mean, I think it's um it's easy to overdose on MFK Fisher. Uh, my suggestion is read a little bit at a time and come back when you're ready. Don't don't binge read or you'll um, you'll lose your taste. Yeah. yeah,
2: All right, nice. Like muscles. Uh Yule <laughs> Gibbons. Yule Gibbons uh, now John, you'll disagree with me. By the way, the sculptor she was married to is Belgian, John, you might be happy to know. Uh, and uh, and I know a Belgian never loses his taste or her taste for muscles, but Yule Gibbons one of my favorite foraging writers ever uh, says muscles are great, but if you're living on a coastline and all you got is muscles, you will tire of them very, very quickly. So MFK Fisher is the great, the, the, the muscle like great writer, I guess is what you're saying, Matt.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can dip in and out, read a chapter. She's, she's meant to be read by chapters.
2: Do it that way. I think the thorns are also like that, Matt and um, the, uh, the other one. And John.
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, well i mean john is he, he's a newsletter writer um he writes in those kinds of those kinds of doses um and yeah i i think there are there are a lot of people who who are really best read that way and you you know you pick one pick a book up and you you read a chapter and and enjoy it and you come back to it in a couple of weeks or, or a month or whenever and and it feels fresh and appealing again but if you you know it's like I like whipped cream. If I, you fed me five bowls of whipped cream, I probably wouldn't like it anymore.
2: No, I'm not with you there. I could eat a non finite amount of whipped cream. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whipped cream is my favorite foam. I, like, I love it a lot. So, the, the thorns, what's that? What's that? Uh, the best known compilation that? What's it called? Like Pig in a Poke or something like that? What's it uh, called? Well,
1: Simple, simple Cooking. That was the name of, of John's newsletter that he wrote for many years, uh, starting, I believe, when he lived in the, in the East Village. Um, and there were four other books, um, they're erratically available at this point. Um, but Simple Cooking is the, is the one that sort of represents what made him, uh, what brought him to people's attention.
2: What's the one with a pig on the cover? Soft cover, kind of? Serious pig. Serious. Was that?
1: Okay. That's like the third book, I believe
2: is that the one with main bean hole cooking in it where he describes how to do bean hole cooking?
1: I would have to look on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, uh, been a long time. To...
2: Been many years, been many, been many years. All right. So then you have one last one that you wanted to do, uh, with Madeline common, right? And I wanted to also ask you about, about her. Why don't you talk about that one?
1: So, uh, this is a book called when French women cook. Uh, it's a book that first appeared in 1976 and it's, a memoir with recipes that also is sort of a sneaky French regional cookbook. Uh, she's She was born in Paris uh, before the uh, Second World War. Uh, because of the war, her family moved around a lot during and after the war. Uh, and she continued to move around um, until she left Paris or left France in uh, I think about 1960. Um, and each chapter is about a different woman in a different part of France. Um, and she's giving you, I think, an amazing sense about uh, the character of, of, of French cooking in, in many forms. Some of these are, you know, uh, are essentially domestic servants who were employed by her family. One of them is a great aunt who actually had a Michelin-starred restaurant. Um, and she's, she's really paying tribute to these women and pr- providing a sense about what French food was, uh, f- 40s, 50s, 60s, well, 40s and 50s really, I guess, because she left in, in 1960. Um, and she really does give you a sense about how um, how varied the cuisine it is. It's, it's one of the losses in current American uh, food publishing that, uh, if you want a French regional book, you, you have like a sh- ton of choices for Provence, a lot of choices for the Southwest, and pretty much the rest of the country is forgotten. Um, I don't know if it has to do with, you know, where people go on vacation or, or whatever it is. But, you know, if you want a book on the food of Normandy or the food of Alsace, you're, you're going to have to go out and, uh, and find something that was written a long time ago. But this book is is currently available. Um, I think it's quite lovely. Uh, Madeline was, um, she's still living, but she's not doing anything food related at this point. Uh, But highly revered, uh, as a cooking teacher, she she ran several successful restaurants. Uh, She has been vilified in certain recent publications for um, uh, not fully appreciating, shall I say, uh, Julia Child. Um, And there was definitely uh, some conflict there. But, you know, over the years, I met her numerous times. She was insatiably, powerfully curious. She was restless and never satisfied with anything. Um, And I think that always shows up in her books.
2: I think we talked about her a little bit the last time you were on, but what what why did she why did she redo her masterwork towards the end of her active career and like so horribly mangle it?
1: Well, I don't know that I would say that she horribly mangled it. Um I think she got in uh, she fell down the rabbit hole uh when she started to do some revisions and updating based on things that she had learned. What makes you that she horribly mangled it she
2: she she bought into what was at the time so what was this 15 16 years ago when it came out i can't remember maybe the, even longer
1: the, than that i would say mid-90s so
2: yeah so she bought into like mid-90s like health garbage and so then like redid like debuttered <laughs> and like redid everything with what was au courant at the time health knowledge and i would rather just have her actual knowledge, you know what I mean? Like, or like her actual, like the spirit of what she was doing. I don't know. I was just, I was disappointed by what appeared to me to be like a pasting on of the new onto what was otherwise a masterwork. That's all.
1: Uh, I, 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 I take your point there that, yeah, I sort of tend to, to, um, just sort of let my eyes slip past some of that material. I think it was typical of the time. Uh, how much of that was was her and how much was her publisher? I, I can't be sure. I mean, you know, uh, it publishing is this incredibly trend-driven business and, you know, you can see it in um, in food photography as, as well as in subject matter. Um, and, you know, it, it probably seemed at that very moment that the book was being written like absolutely essential to the way people understood food. Um, yeah, and guess, it turned out to be wrong.
2: Like another another one, I think, it's not in the same way, but, I mean, feel free to not want to comment on this, but, you know, to me, one of the all-time classics is uh, Peterson's Sauce, sauces, or whatever it's called. And I say go with the first edition. Go with the first edition. Straight up. You know what I mean? Like, Like, full cream reduction, like, that view into what was going on in the 90s when that was written is, like, not to be matched. And, like, the new one he added, I'm not going to say he mangled his old work, but, I mean, I just feel that the first edition, the second edition doesn't top the first. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, I think they're... uh, We're actually on edition four at this point, I believe. But Um,
2: there was the one where they added all the modern techniques and stuff, and, like drastically expanded and took out a lot of the 90s style, like double cream reduction sauces. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, partly that's going to be driven by what uh, culinary schools may have been demanding, maybe not sort of the higher end schools, but some of the like the uh, uh, junior colleges and so forth scattered around the country, which can actually turn out to be a big market for books like that. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to talk to, to Jim about that in particular. It's um, still a
2: good book. Don't get me wrong, but it's just like that. The first one that I had the black cover. That yeah. one is like was a revel- When I read it, I was like, "Oh my
1: god, I love this book!" You know what I mean? Well, I think that goes back also to um, to what you were saying about being aware of when a book comes along, uh, and you know, it may definitely represent sauces that are not commonly used anymore. But as a, as a piece of reference, as an access to technique and to a world in which people did things a certain way, it's unparalleled, um, and, and having the knowledge of that allows you to go off and do other things that may, may not have been happening when the book was first published, but you've got the tools to, uh, to build new things. So that's why I would say don't, you know, don't dismiss a book just because it's old.
2: Yeah. All right. So listen, we, we're out of time, right, Stas? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, how about this? We'll answer any questions that we didn't do this week. We'll do, we'll do next week. If any of you have any pressing questions, then you know, maybe I'll try to answer them over Twitter, send them in or whatnot. Uh, otherwise... When is the, when is the GoFundMe over? You want to give Kitchen Arts and Letters, by the way, is the store we're talking about. We've had Matt Sartwell on doing uh, his classics in the field, giving you know some of his rich knowledge, and you could do this all day. And literally, if we could still have call-ins, you guys could call in and pepper him with questions left, right, and you know pretty much he'd knock him out of the park every time. So Uh-oh. please go to the GoFundMe. Um, and, you know, add more, even if they've made their goal, like help them, help them not. So earlier in the show, Matt said that they had dug out of the deepest pit and now they're just in some sort of basement. So they just need to be able to do chin ups out of the basement. But let's get them like <laughs> up on the ground floor and then maybe even like a little bit of a porch or a deck to stand on. All right. So
1: yeah, <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd love a deck.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A deck. We're not asking for we're not asking for skyscrapers, people. A deck. <laughs> a deck. And, so, and- uh yeah
1: a deck and a little sunshine
2: there you go uh so um you know also like you know let's have you back on maybe after the gofundme is over or you know some more classics and then you know if we ever get back to normal again, such that people can call in and ask you questions. Cause really like that's the, that's how people are going to experience what it's like. Like, remember I tossed you the random Haka question earlier. Like that's what it's like dealing with them. So let's preserve kitchen arts and letters for a long, long time. Um, Thanks for coming on Matt uh, as usual.
1: Thank you for having me back. I really appreciate it.
2: All right. Uh, This has been cooking issues.